Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Hello, young adventurers. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I interview Jesse Shell. I've known Jesse Shell for a number of years, and he is known as one of the most badass virtual reality designers on the planet. He has amazing products like the Art at Game Design book and these card decks that I love to use. And we go deep talking in the areas of virtual reality, transformation. Uh, what is it like to, to have such a large studio? How do you balance out making collaboration decisions and final decisions amongst teams? What does it take to become a designer in the area of virtual reality? What hiccups do only happen? What are some of the issues with MMO VR issues today and virtual reality as the new social medium? And so we have a great, amazing talk about his backgrounds, his journeys. What does it take for him to start from getting in the areas of gaming or more so getting in the areas of entertainment like juggling and magic and moving in the spaces of computer and network and ultimately into gaming talks about the love of magic and that gift that he loves to give to people so this is a, a great conversation we we go deep in the topics if you're interested in virtuality design transformation i highly recommend checking this out now there was a moment where my internet cut out for a second so i clipped out for a second uh, so apologies there but overall it still has a much of the great value and beauty inside this podcast so i'm excited to share this with you so without any further ado jesse Hey, Jesse Sell. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I appreciate you being here. So glad to, to be here today. Awesome, man. Um, I have followed your work um, for years and years, getting into the virtual reality space. And I love all of the content that you put out there. Um, I find it to be really inspiring. One of the fun things is I always think when I, when I feel like I came up with something novel or inventive or revolutionary, and I'm like, oh, my God. I, I usually find a video with you talking about it from five to 10 years ago. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so like in terms of like gamify and everything, it's, it's incredible. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time and I love all the work that you do. Um, Thanks. I would love to learn just a little bit of your journey of, of how you got uh, to running your own um, game studios and, and what inspired you on the path. Oh yeah, sure. No, yeah, be yeah. No, boy, there's so many. Uh, that's a long story. I'm not sure where to begin. <laughs> well, uh, where it feels makes sense to kick off. Um, I know you've had kind of a long journey, but uh... yeah. Well, let's see. So I've always been interested in entertainment. I've always been interested in technology. And I've actually looked back at a lot of the interests I've had over the years. And at some point I'm like, wow, I sure have, there's been a lot of things I've tried to explore. Like, what do they all have in common? And I found that more than anything else, things that feel magical have been, those have always been what's held my interest the most. Um, entertainment is certainly that way. Lots of kinds of technology are that way. I started juggling at a very young age. That was a thing I, I was really into. I actually became a professional performer for, um, for, for several years when I was a teenager. Um, even stage magic, 
uh, paranormal phenomena was something I really spent a lot of time exploring and then also stuff like physics. And anyway, so I, I realized like, oh my gosh, magic and things that feel like magic are, are tend to be what I care about um, the most. And so growing up, I chased a lot of interest. One of them was computer games. I, I'm old enough to have been there when computers started to appear in the home. I can remember back before there were video games. And so when they showed up, it was kind of a big deal. And the idea of being able to make your own video games was, you know, in the early 80s was incredibly interesting and appealing. And so I started doing it at that point very much as a, as a hobby. As I went through my teenage years, I continued to pursue computer science as, uh, as something of a, of a career, but I also was doing a lot of uh, stage performing. And for me, partly that was, you know, in school stuff, drama club, et cetera. But out of school, I would be doing the circus stuff. I got jobs at amusement parks doing juggling and puppeteering and, uh, and clowning and that kind of thing. And um, sort of, so I was sort of doing these things uh, side by side. I realized that at some point I knew like, I've got to make a decision here. And I realized, man, a life as a performer is a tough life. It's, you really got to hustle hard. Uh, I knew a lot of people who were doing it and eating two meals a day uh, because that was what they could afford. And that didn't seem great. And then the other thing that made me a little uncertain about it was the repetition of it. Mm -hmm. How once you get a good act, you're going to do that act and do that act and do that act and do that act. And I wasn't sure that that was what I wanted to keep doing. Part of what was appealing to me about the world of um, software development was that it's always new, always something new, 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 new. And I loved that. And so when I got out of college, I started focusing on, you know, I on very traditional software development, working for companies like IBM and Bell Communications Research, um, because a job in computer games just didn't seem realistic. At this point, it would have been the late 80s. Uh, computer games existed, but I didn't know anybody who knew anybody who did that for a job because we're on the East Coast, right? Most of the computer game stuff was happening on the West Coast. Um, so I went into stuff that was a little more uh, traditional that way. But then, um, so I started working for the Bell Communications Research and I was led there because I'd been pursuing artificial intelligence. Like as, as an undergrad student, In the this is gonna sound weird, but in the eighties, we believed that by the year 2000, it was very possible that computers could have human level intelligence. And uh, that was really wrong, but it created a lot of passion around the, 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 the field of artificial intelligence. And I'd been very focused on that. And that was what led me to Bell Communications Research because they were doing a lot of AI research. They sent me to graduate school for um, uh, computer networking. And it was sort of weird how that happened. I, I, when I was applying for jobs, I would ask everybody, hey, do you send people to graduate school? Which is a little bit of a weird thing to ask because most companies don't do that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't see how I could afford it myself. But I thought maybe some company would send me because I'd heard of it happening. And most companies said, no, no, we definitely don't. Why would you even ask that? But Bell Communications Research said, well, we used to do that, but we don't do that anymore. Well, there's this one program. 
But there's one program in computer networking. And if you're interested, we can put your name in. And I thought computer networking, who cares, right? Because at that point it's 1992, there's no web, right? Um, so computer networking, like who really cares? What does that even mean to anybody? And so I had to think about it because I'm like, man, do I really want to go for a graduate degree in computer networking? And to go think about it, I went to play pinball because that was often how I think about things. And I'm thinking about it. I'm playing some pinball and I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Computer networking is so boring. I know what it is. I know, I know about opening sockets and stuff. I don't want to be doing all that. What I really want to do, I want to make stuff like this pinball machine. This pinball machine is so cool. Like, what would it take to build a pinball machine like this? And I thought about it. I'm like, well, you got sensors and they kind of accumulate data and then they send it to the other sensors. And I'm like, oh, God damn it, it's computer networking. <laughs> and, and at that point I realized, oh yeah, wow, you can use networking in all kinds of ways. So I thought, all right, I guess I'm in. And so I went to grad school for that. And in working on my thesis there, um, at that point, virtual reality had appeared. And it was, you know, suddenly this new thing on the horizon. By now it's the early 90s, virtual reality exists in the research community. And I thought, man, that is cool as anything. If anything is a magical experience, like VR is certainly that. Um, and so I got into doing that in grad school and did a thesis about that. I had, we had, you know, myself and my teammates, we had a vision about uh, virtual reality, massively multiplayer games. We kind of thought that would be a thing. So we did a thesis all about that, which involved both networking and VR together. Um, and so graduated out of there. And a couple years later, found an opportunity at the Walt Disney Company. They'd opened a VR studio in 1995. Uh, that was all about what's the, what's the future of virtual reality for the Disney theme parks. And I saw this job opening and I looked at what they were asking for. They were looking for somebody who had experience with VR, check, experience with AI. I'm like, AI, why do they want AI? The scripting language they were using was a Lisp variant, which was what we would normally use in the world of AI back in the day. Um, someone who'd done sound editing. I used to have a radio show in college and somebody who knew how to put on a show. And I'm like, I've done all these. I can do all this stuff. And so I applied for that. And was able to get the job and that was a real life changer for me getting into disney imagineering into the disney theme parks at the cutting edge of vr um that absolutely changed my life the people i met the projects we worked on um that was that was the big breakthrough for me wow that's incredible i've, I've noticed the, the people that I, at the dawn of this you look at uh, nolan bushnell and other people they yeah. uh, they were first in the space of they were in the circus, they were in the the other places, the other types of entertainment, and then there was that that cross correlation where if you look at like a circus, they're almost creating this type of virtual environment and ecosystem for you to step into yeah, that yeah. then changes your perception, which gives you that sense of magic. My question for you around the whole magic side of things: Were you into the magic because it was an effect that you you were enamored by that what you could do in uh, in that situation, or was it the the sensation of what you gave to other people, right? Was it was the magic about that, the internal experience or the external of giving it as a showman? No, it's a really great question, and I don't even know if I have a solid. Uh, 
answer for that because I think the answer is both. I get very excited by experiences that seem magical, but at the same time, when you do something and you see that look in someone's eyes, that look, even though it's often a really just fleeting moment, where you see that look in their eyes where they're like, oh my God, maybe magic is real. And you see that and they believe that for just, even if it's just the shortest period of time, there's something really special about that. And I've thought a lot about that is like, is this, is this, cause it, cause a lot of things you do like that, they can feel like showing off, mm-hmm. right? You do, you do a, you do a juggling trick or a magic trick or some crazy thing that your video game does that people didn't think was possible. And is it, is it just showing off and is it ego driven? But I, I, I don't, I never feel, I don't generally feel like that's, that's not usually what I'm going for. I'm, I'm, what I like most is when you can create that moment where people feel like, like the, the universe is more than I think it is. You know, maybe magic is real. I love that maybe magic real. I know this one thing from from running a VR community and putting the heads on lots and lots and lots of people that every time you put someone in who's never experienced it before and the way that they light up, it's like it's like you're a you're it's like you're a parent and they're the child and you expose them to something and then their joy becomes your joy yep. all at the same time again, which is which is super powerful. Um, one of those. Uh, I want to touch on that 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 VR MMO thesis you had, but before that, I do want to say oh, oh, one incredible moment I had uh, when I was playing one of your VR games, which is I expect you to die. The trailer, the intro scene mm-hmm. to that, we were actually oh, the opening credits, the opening credit, James yeah, Bond. Yeah, yeah. Like, to me, I was just, I was like, oh, this is what a this is what a movie VR trailer should feel like. You're actually living the trailer of the movie. And yeah. it felt that that right there was one of those matches. I was like, oh, you gotta try this to like play the game. I'm like, no, no, just just go through the trailer. That whole sensation uh, to me was one of was very very magical. Um, the way it wasn't, it didn't need to be necessarily real, but just the feeling it gave you by bringing you through uh, with the imagery and the sound and all that. I'd love to hear a little bit uh, more on how that got created. Oh, it's hilarious how that actually happened because that wasn't the plan. So for, for people who don't know the game, so so our, our VR game, I Expect You to Die, um, is, is it's a VR escape room type game. Mm. The, the premise is you're, you're sort of a spoof of a James Bond type character who finds himself in kind of death trap after death trap after death trap, and you've got to use your wits to MacGyver your way out of the situations. And that's that's sort of the heart of what that game is. And uh, the title, I Expected to Die, right? It clearly comes from Goldfinger. There's that moment where Bond is strapped to the table and the lasers coming at him and and he tries to play it cool and he says, you know, so you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger says, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die, right? And the way we got there with that game is is sort of funny. Mm. Uh, we were built like I had trouble. Like I've been a I've been into VR for I don't know what 25 years now, something like that. I started in like 92. And I've always loved VR and it's fascinated me and I've kind of worked on it. I worked on it when I was at Disney and then I moved to Carnegie Mellon in 2000 and started teaching classes in it and 
So I continued to work on it. So when it started to show up in the consumer space, having our studio work on it was very, it was something I really wanted to do. But I had trouble getting interest. There were a lot of people in the studio who were like, oh, VR is not really going anywhere. It's just kind of a gimmick. And I'm like, no, come on, let's build some prototypes. So we started building prototypes. And part of what I was really encouraging people was don't move around too much because it can get, it can cause motion sickness. So try and keep still. And I was trying to give guidance for how to do that. And I was being ignored. One of the developers was basically like, no, I'm just going to just move you because moving is cool. And then I get in, I'm like, oh, this is nauseating. Like, why did you do this? And he said, and, and he got frustrated and said, you know, I did it because, you know, you put on the headset, you want to feel super powerful, but you're not super powerful. You're tied to a chair. What kind of superhero gets tied to a chair? And we all looked at each other and we're like, superheroes get tied to chairs a lot, but nobody ever made a game about that. What if that's our game? What if this is the way we have a comfortable, uh, uh, situation where you don't have to move around a lot, but you're still going to do cool stuff. So that was the initial inspiration um, for the game. For the, the opening trailer, it's kind of funny. So we're working on the game. We're moving yeah. along on this. And every once in a while, I'd hear some people on the team whispering about, oh, oh, did you see that? Did you see that thing Connor did? Oh my God, it's so cool. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm like, oh, that's weird. And I just kind of blew it off for a while. And then I heard somebody talking about it again. They're like, uh, uh, we're not supposed to talk about it. I'm like, what do you mean you're not supposed? Just tell me, what, what is it? And they're like, well, uh, we worked out this credit sequence. Somebody wrote a song and somebody made, you know, Connor made a little animation over one weekend. And we all think it's pretty cool. I'm like, okay, so show it to me. And they're like, nah, it's not going to fit in the budget. We know we can't do it. Um, I'm like, well, well, let me see it. And like, I see it and it's this, and it's this kind of beginnings of a song and it's these cool animations in the style of like those James Bond opening credits. And I was just like, oh God, this is beautiful. Like, this is such a good idea. We have to do this. And everybody's like, but it doesn't, it doesn't, how can we do it? It doesn't fit the budget. And I'm like, it, it's our game. We can change the budget with a good enough idea. And everybody's like, wait, we can, we can do that. And it's sort of funny how, you know, people often get ideas, get a little stuck. But so we're like, yeah, let's let's do that. And um, I was really proud about that because I was very involved in the, in directing it, kind yeah. of helping to kind of direct it moment to moment because we'd, ne we'd never done anything like this. We weren't, there were a lot of questions about the right way to do it, but um, we, we, you know, we put in some time and tried to get the details right on it because we knew it would be um, the first impression that the yeah. game made. And also something not essential, you don't need to do this for the game. So we liked the kind of above and beyond uh, quality of it, and it really fit the property well. And yeah, we're, we're, I'm just I'm just really pleased with how the opening credits came out. Wow! So it was a pure passion. Didn't think it was going to make it in, mm. and then they showed it to you, and you're like, "It's got to go in." Which is oh, funny yeah. how that uh, emotion a lot of time trumps all other decisions if this thing is incredibly fun or incredible in some way shape or form and then everything else gets pushed aside because ultimately we're in the creation of games or vr or any type of yeah. entertainment you're giving that emotion you're giving someone an emotion and and when yeah, i played yeah, I, was, yeah. I was blown i was yeah you got, you got to follow the fun you got yeah. like 
you 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 think you know what's good ahead of time and then you find stuff along the way and you, you've got to be ready to change the plan um to to to, to follow the stuff that's gonna that's gonna be great how do you let me ask you how do you balance out so you work with the team whether they're small or large and you want there to be collaboration you want there to be openness at the same time decisions have to be made and mm -hmm. and and there's this whole I know like like Walt Disney had uh, apparently there's things where he's, you know, he kind of said it's my way, or the highway kind of thing. And they, but you try to open up collaborations. How do you balance out creating a collaborative environment? But at the end of the day, having like one decision to, to like, how do you make your decisions on those processes when you're trying to have collaboration involved? Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's hard. You're just putting that out there. Um, it's always easier just to make go make stuff by yourself. That's fine. But if you're going to make stuff with a group of people, it's going to be hard because not everybody's going to agree. And so you use a whole collection of techniques. The very best is when you get an idea out there and everybody's just sees it and they're like, oh, yes, it's beautiful and we love it and we all get it. And a lot of times that sort of speaks to the quality of the idea, um, because when the idea is good enough, there isn't a lot of arguing. Everybody looks at it and says, of course, why would we, why would we do it any other way? And everybody can contribute because they all get it. They're all in. Everybody's on the same wavelength. And those are the absolute best moments. And I will, I will say that is partly what happened with the, the, that credit sequence. Everybody got it. Everybody got where it was going to be. And anytime anyone touched it, it got better because everybody, everybody intuitively understood what it was and where it was trying to go so when that happens that's great that's magical and that's what you want that doesn't always happen um, what often happens is you end up with situations where people don't agree somebody thinks this is more important somebody thinks that's more important well you can't do both which one are we going to do you've got those situations um and uh and and it's 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 tough and and i would say that's where a lot of the real the real art of teamwork is, mm. is in handling those situations where there is disagreement and there is, um, there is conflict. And it's, you bring out a whole lot of techniques at that point. Part of it is you do have to have some level of creative authority on a project. What we always try and do uh, just like a movie, we establish every project with a director and a producer. And the, the director is responsible for creative vision and the game being great. The producer is responsible for time and budget and uh, making sure everybody has enough to do. And so those are two very different responsibilities, but neither one is above the other. Because if you put the director over the producer, your thing is, you know, they're, the producer's going to be overridden, your thing's going to the budget's going to go nuts. You put the producer over the director and you're just going to be a slave to the budget. But you put the two of them side by side and now they have to kind of hash it out. Um, and that's a good, that's the good kind of creative tension where everyone's trying, people are each defending different important things and brokering compromises that are going to be best for the different things that are important in the project. So creative authority is important. And then of course we try and support them. We're, we're fortunate our studio has maybe 130 people. We're typically making about eight games at a time. 
So we have an executive team that can kind of advise on multiple projects at once. And so we can kind of give them advice, but we do try and give them authority at the same time. We're like director and producer, you guys are making the calls on this. We're mostly advising. Occasionally there'll be situations where myself and the executive team have to override and say, that's just, sorry guys, that's, that's just a patently bad idea. You can't do that. Um, we, but we try and avoid um, those situations as much, as much as possible. So it's this mixture of, you want people to have authority to be able to own what they're doing. You want a team that liked, that really loves working with each other. Like um, the mission statement for our company is that our mission is to make experiences we're proud of with people we like in order to make the world a better place. And that sounds sort of simple, but it's it's important. And that, that people we like part of it is really important. Working with people you like is, is something that's, um, it's profoundly different than working with people you don't like. And now you get into the question of what is it that makes somebody likable? So an awful lot of what we do in terms of coaching for team members is trying to figure out what is it that makes people likable and what is it that makes you like to work with somebody? So when you can foster that kind of energy in the team, it helps everybody get on the same page. Because even when people disagree, they can talk about it. When people don't like each other, they have a really hard time talking about disagreements. Yeah. And, and, and so, so there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's many, many aspects to that. Man, <laughs> you touched on some very deep and fundamental truths especially with the collaborations on games and things like that i've I, I run my own game studios and thankfully the people that i work with are all my dear friends who i like i love there's nobody on the team that i dislike we enjoy each other now we do conflict because we have a lot of passion a small team but yeah. that liking each other and and being willing to like voice your opinions versus that the sometimes when you get team members in that um, they don't say anything and they hold it in and then there's an explosion. I think it's so much more um, detrimental to a team versus like letting it out there just because your passion, you realize it's just about wanting to make the game great and give the best experience, let alone versus that person has something against that other person. So being able to first make everybody likable and then and then working beyond those problems is is really huge. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so much of what makes for good teamwork and and uh, creating good product is all about information flow and things that block information flow um, are, are problematic and a lot of times it's negative emotions are what block information flow on teams uh, more than more than anything else 100 percent agree that makes a ton of sense and yeah there's a lot of things that like um, um, Again, I've followed you over the years and have definitely adapted, uh, AKA stole a lot of the, the insights that you've given on your, your lessons. And so like our whole like team value sets um, that we have are uh, a mashup of words. So uh, I believe you had the word respectabilitude, I believe. Was oh one of the yeah, words. right. Right. Yeah, yeah, respectabilitude, right? The, uh, uh, the, abil the ability to make other people feel respected. And so we got together with the team members and we just brainstormed what are the feelings that we give? And then from the feelings, we started creating our own words. And so 
one of the words came was uh, care collaboration, which was a combination of both caring and collaborating at the same time. Oh, all right, all right. And so we, we have a variety of these different words that again taken from that. If you can create that connotation, you own that word and bring it in, and then and then you know there's no other biases of that. So I think that stuff's huge, 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 huge. Um, oh. and it just makes the job so much more enjoyable. Um, you talked about your your virtuality MMO thesis uh, back uh, back in the day. Yeah. If you were to write that again, how do you think it might have changed from then to now? What do you think uh, are some new insights and things on the MMO thesis for VR? Oh, that's funny. Boy, I haven't thought about that thing in a while. So it's interesting because at the time, there weren't really MMOs. We had, we had MUDs, which were kind of text-based um, multiplayer online dungeons, right? That's, that's kind of what those were. But in terms of like a spatially, you know, you know, things like World of Warcraft, they just didn't exist back then. Um, <clears throat> so we were really trying to figure out what are they going to be like, and then the what the the nature of our thesis was about um, what's what's the right way to kind of set up a set up a well actually it was about two things first it was a, it, it had a practical side and then it had a theoretical side the practical side was let's actually build a software infrastructure that would work for um a multiplayer online vr and we were kind of pioneering some things that hadn't been done before previous to that there had been some multiplayer simulations, mostly created by the government for the purposes of uh, uh, war game simulations, but they, they were pretty limited. So we were trying to make something more general. So some things that we came up with really are still true today um, in terms of making decisions about what needs to be synchronized, what doesn't need to be synchronized the systems of lock keeping so that you um, so that you can be sure that the worlds are in sync so that if like three people go to pick up a pencil at the same time they don't all hold it you know one person has to hold it and the other two have to not hold it so those things are are really similar mm. um, the stuff that's different is the question of scalability and um, and sharding, um, you know, uh, creating uh, multiple copies of a world. That isn't something, well, that was something we sort of speculated about and it was, it was a little bit of a psychological question. Are people going to prefer one massive world that you move around in or are they going to want a world with copies? It was a thing totally unknown at the time. And now of course we understand that shards are actually a much more normal way for people to um, interact. And in fact, you look now at where MMOs have moved to. We've moved from things like World of Warcraft. And now when people talk about MMOs, they're talking about things like Fortnite, which is really just a collection of little pocket worlds, or they're talking about Minecraft, which again is a collection of little pocket worlds. Um, so, yeah, so there, there's 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 definitely some of that. Back then, there was a lot of debate 
about the the importance of servers. There were a lot of in, there were a lot of people who were sort of religious about oh servers are temporary everything's going to be peer to peer, and it's just around the corner. Believe me, all the communication will be peer to peer, and you're not going to need servers. And that's certainly proved to not be correct. <laughs> that that hasn't that has certainly proved not to be correct um, at all. Um, but I'm excited because even though you know we were we were fussing about that stuff almost 30 years ago now, we're finally moving into that zone where VR massively multiplayer uh, games are actually starting to uh, emerge, and uh, uh, so that that's something I'm very excited about. It's it's definitely coming. Um, I, uh, I as as someone who I've built a, a couple of. Um, multi-user VR experiences that desyncing over the network and as you call it lot lock network is is one of those dragons that you like to get everything to sync up and work together is is a challenge sometimes yeah so yeah I, I actually brought a lot of the a lot of what I developed on the thesis because um, mm -hmm. when I was at Disney we developed a game called Toontown Online which was the first MMO for kids and I did a lot of the initial network architecture uh, for it. And a lot of the concepts out of the thesis actually were, were made manifest when we built Toontown Online. That's super cool, really innovative. I know, I think I talked to you about that um, during one of the uh, talks with uh, Amy Jo Kim. Um, and right, right. One of those. So, and by the way, thank you for that. Um, years ago, I don't know if you remember, but I, I reached out to you years ago and I was like, hey, I love what you do. I'm making this AR thing. Uh, you know, what should I do? I, I don't know what. And then you sent me a link to Amy Jo Kim and her work. And oh. so, and so I looked up her stuff, did that, signed up for a course, and now I do some work with her on the side on some other projects and stuff. So, um, definitely like continued to help me level up my game in the areas of design. Um, on that note, uh, which is really funny, I have, I have, I don't know if you've ever seen this box before of uh your, your cards and i was going through it last night looking for some general inspiration and i came across the hero's journey there you lens go yeah here. 176 right there yeah which i thought was awesome which basically a lot of what this whole podcast is themed around is the hero's journey hmm. um, and gaming terminologies uh uh with that looking at these types of card sets uh do you think there's anything around uh certain powerful things of lens stacking are there powerful lens stacks that you put together in a sequence to help you think through a design process? Like the combination for me might be virtual interfaces and hero's journey plus da, da, da. Are there stacks that you've seen before that have been powerful or inspirational to you? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, for people who don't know the, 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 the deck of cards that we're talking about here. So I wrote a book, The Art of Game Design. And part of the premise of it was that good game design happens by looking at your game from multiple perspectives. And I tried to make these concrete as what I called lenses. And each lens was basically a set of questions that you might ask yourself about your game. And the way I got to that, actually, when I set out to write a game, a book about game design, I did it fairly early. I guess I started it, I don't know, probably 2003, four, something like that. I'm not sure exactly when. But um, <clears throat> at the time, there weren't very many game design books. They were really rare. Um, and uh, so game design books were really rare. 
And so I didn't have a lot to go on, but I had a lot of ideas and things that I thought would work. And I was talking to some really senior game designers about it, um, wanted to get their take. I'm like, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? And some of them shook their head and said, no, you can't write a good book about game design. And I was like, why? And they said, well, the problem is any advice you give is going to be valid for some games and totally wrong for other games. So if you make a book trying to give advice about making games, you're going to find yourself being wrong like a lot of the time. And I thought about that because I'm like, ooh, that's a good point, right? The same, same advice I give for Tetris might not be the same advice I give for Doom 2. Um, and thinking that over, I made this realization that questions can't be wrong. A question might be irrelevant, but a question is never wrong. And realize that like, yeah, that's really what I want to do. I want to give people like, look, these are the questions you should ask yourself as you make a game. So yeah, so that's what the, the lenses are. And I, I definitely find there are some that go together. And part of the reason I did it as a deck of cards and not just a book was so that you could mix them up and take something from chapter three and something from chapter 22 and put them next to each other. Because that's going it's, to, it's really going to depend on the game uh, that you're working on. I mean, sure, there are sets of lenses that are like all about characters. And so I often find, yeah, there are some there that really makes sense. I mean, or, you know, like I'm just flipping through them right now, like the lens of the interest, the lens of the interest curve and the lens of inherent interest. Those are both about like things that people find interesting. So those go really well um, together. Um, I do think, for example, the lens of the hero's journey and the lens of the obstacle often go really well together because what makes for a good hero's journey is often what are the obstacles that you are, that the player is up against. And if the obstacles aren't significant enough or clear enough, that's, that's problematic. But other times it's, they're really unexpected connections. And so being able to shuffle the cards up and kind of put them next to each other can be a really great way to explore things. A hundred percent. And I, I found it to be very powerful to, to look at that. And one thing I was, I was thinking about, I came across last night as I realized that the, uh, and I, ne I never realized it until last night and I wrote it down as just, and I don't know if it necessarily makes sense or not, but the, the quest for the truth, there is a quest inside question. And I realized that, that the like questions is always seeking something and you're always on a journey to find something. You're right. Questions are, they're, they're never wrong. They're only, they only have you delve deep word, like inwards or outwards in any way, shape or form. I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons why I love these cards and they're, they're so very um, powerful. But one of the things I want to talk about with this, so you talk about the hero's journey, you talk about the obstacle, because really it's the character, they have a goal and then there's a struggle, right? And that's basically mm -hmm. hero's journey in the framework. But we know that if you look at that, there's really the hero's two journeys. There's the journey of not only the, for achievement, there's a here. There's the journey of transformation, yeah, and yeah. that one is the the second more unclear, unseen, unspoken. We can all feel it, but we don't always acknowledge it um, as the hero goes through the journey. And you've built a lot of applications in the area of transformation. Um, you even made a transformational framework. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your thoughts on transformation using these technologies for transformation and can the can entertainment and transformation coexist in a beautiful happy world together 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, we we use the word transformation a lot at the studio because we do a lot of work in the realm of educational games and games that are designed to improve people's lives. And what we found was we struggled trying to talk about this because you have games that are meant for entertainment that are just you know meant to be amusing. You do them, you're engaged with them, and that's really all you focused on sometimes you're, you're like we just want people to be engaged with these but when you're talking about games for education you really want to make a change in the player and part of what we recognized was well not there there are games that um aren't necessarily educational but are still designed to make a change like if i have a game that's designed to help you change one of your habits i don't know if it's an i don't know if i call it an educational game um, if it works at making you change your habit, but it is always a transformational game. And when you're designing good educational experiences, the focus should always be, what is the change that I want to bring about? You know, someone might say, oh, I want to make an algebra game. I'm like, okay, great. What is it that you want to change in the player, right? Well, I want them to know algebra. You mean just some facts about algebra? Well, no, I want them to be able to do these certain kinds of problems um, easily. Okay, so now you're saying, you're assuming going in they can't do these easily, and you want them to be able to do them easily. Well, what is it that makes them not easy? What's going to change it? What's going to change this person so that what was hard is now easy? Because when you, when you keep asking that question and drill down and drill down and drill down, then you figure out how I can actually bring about a change um, in a person. And yeah, so that's something we talk about a lot. And because, and, and it's also true, of course, that there is overlap in the entertainment space as well. Um, because sure, you have games, you know, we're working on a game right now that's all about uh, trying to reduce opioid abuse, right? To kind of have, have people better understand, well, what do I do if I somebody in my family or one of my friends is kind of involved with opioids like how can what can i do we have a game um that's all about that but uh, and so that's obviously a transformational game but then there are other games that are just you know you're just doing an entertainment game but now you have to ask yourself the question do i want to bring about changes with the entertainment that i that i produce and on one level, you might say, no, nah, that sounds, it sounds like I'll be preachy. I don't necessarily do that. But the truth is that the feeling that somebody cares what you become is an incredibly powerful feeling. And when you can put that into the entertainment content that you create, it ends up with sort of a power in it where people love the content but they don't necessarily know why they love it um and so we, we think about that a lot even with our entertainment experiences how how can we use this experience to change people for the better that's that's incredible i love that there's when you're talking about there's a power in someone else believing in you and and supporting your dreams or or holding you to a higher standard that you may not even hold yourself it, it causes you to almost in some way shape or form um embody that heroic potential that you have within you that you may not 
give yourself permission to let let out. There's there's something really interesting about that. How do you? I mean, like, have you seen? Is there have been any types of VR, non-VR experiences that you've seen that have had a powerful effect on on you or the player that you're like, wow, that is an incredible transformation I've seen someone have while going through that, where that actually shifted not only their habits but their beliefs. Is there any any type of experiences? Well, it's uh, um, I've certainly seen a lot of those come out of Toontown. Um, uh, two two things I guess I think about with Toontown. One is we had to put a communication system in it. It's an MMO. We know MMOs are about communication and, and people connecting with each other. And when I first went to Disney and said, hey, I, let's, uh, I think the Walt Disney Company should get into this MMO thing. I think family-oriented MMOs, I think this is going to be a thing. Now, back then, there wasn't anything like that. You know, We had EverQuest and Dark Ages of Camelot, very, very gamer-oriented games. And they gave a lot of pushback. They're like, no, that's, first of all, that's just gamer stuff. And secondly, how are you going to keep the kids safe? Like the, that community, the level of communication online is going to be a disaster. And I said, okay. And I could have said, oh, they're telling me no. But instead I looked at it. I said, okay, so what you're telling me is if I can make a thing that's not a gamer oriented aesthetic and I can make it safe for the kids, then we can talk about it. And they were like, well, I guess if you can figure that out. And so we put our emphasis on that. Let's figure out the themes that are going to make sense. And let's figure out how we can make this safe. And so we created a, a, a communication system that was very safe, that was all about um, choosing phrases from a menu it was the main form of communication. And that hadn't really been done before. And it was a context sensitive menu. So it would when you were in battle, it was different than when you were, you know, just out fishing or whatever. Um, and uh, this worked actually really well for the kids because the they couldn't type anyway. So uh, being able to kind of pick messages from a menu was very empowering for them because mm. now it let them communicate, whereas normally on the internet, they couldn't communicate so well. So it was empowering for them and very safe because now we could pick the phrases that they could and could not say. And as we thought about these phrases, we thought, well, we want these to reflect kind of a Disney aesthetic. You know, they, they should be generally positive, generally encouraging, generally friendly, funny and fun. Um, we put in a little bit of you know, ability to kind of go outside that a little bit. The, the biggest one we put in, we, we left you stink in there. That was, that was basically the, the F-bomb of, uh, of Toontown, you stink. Yeah. Um, because that, you know, you need to leave some level of freedom so that people are making choices. Mm -hmm. But we did think about how, wouldn't it be nice if people played this game and came out of it um, being a little more polite? Right. If the game was kind of encouraging you because and and in the game, there's no PVP. You can't fight against other players, but we make it very easy to help other players. A an example of that was there's a healing class in Toontown. Um, it's not not a class exactly, but a healing skill. And we put that in because we know some people are really excited about healing. Mm. And. The problem with it is the problem a lot of multiplayer games have with healing is if people can heal themselves, 
you don't necessarily need somebody who specializes in healing. Like, how are you gonna balance it so that works? So we made a controversial decision, which is like, okay, people can't heal themselves. You can only heal other people, which is, a, that's an unusual choice to make in a game. But we made it because we knew it would encourage people to help each other, right? It would encourage them to kind of be helpful and come together and, and collaborate that way. So we made choice after choice after choice in that game, which was all about trying to get people to be collaborative and helpful. And we got this piece of uh, email once from a player who said, you know, I just want to talk to you about your game. Um, I didn't used to play your game. I played Dark Ages of Camelot. And for people who don't know that game, it was, you know, it was a kind of a slightly edgy MMO. And part of the deal in it was um, when you'd have a battle at the end of it, players would have a big argument about how to split up the loot because it wasn't done for you. So a bunch of you would fight and then you have this big argument about who deserved what. And so it was very conflict oriented in, in, inside the game. In Toontown, we got rid of all that. The, the loot based on, we, we just keep careful accounting of every hit that you do in a battle. And based on every hit that everybody does, we, every, everybody, you know, it's all, everything is kind of given out independently. It, it doesn't feel like you're splitting loot. It feels like, you're getting rewarded for what you did. Anyway, so he was talking about, I used to play Dark Ages and I came to play Tune Down to check it out. And I was surprised, I was, it was more fun than I thought. And I, so I started playing it more and more as kind of a break. Then I was playing it 50-50 and then I realized I was playing it most of the time and I didn't play Dark Ages for a while. And then I came back to Dark Ages and we went out on a raid and we beat this enemy. And at the end, I said to everybody, hey, good job, everybody. And all my friends looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I realized your game brainwashed me into being a nice person. So thanks for nothing, jerks. And then that was the end of the email. Um, and it was sort of funny because like there were two tones in it. One was like he appreciated it. And another level, he was a little kind of taken aback at how easily by yeah. taking over a person's inter interaction, you kind of change their way of thinking. That's so funny, man. Yeah. That's like, how dare you make me feel my feelings. Um. Yeah. <laughs> one, one other, you know, quicker Toontown story. Sure, sure, sure. We, we very intentionally designed that game for parents and kids to play together. And that's a design paradigm most people don't think about. People talk a lot about, oh, design for kids. And how do you design for kids and kids and kids? But that's one thing. But designing for parents and kids to play together is a very special kind of design. And I was very comfortable with it because I'd done so much work creating things for the Disney parks. And that's what they're designed for. Uh, a family comes, it's parents, it's kids. It's not for either of them, it's for them together and how they do stuff together. And that's sort of the Disney mentality. And so we very much designed that into Toontown. Um, and we did it for a, partly a practical reason. That was a subscription-based game. If it was going to be paid for, it's on the parent's credit card, but mostly it's the kids playing it. And we recognized that if the parents and kids played it together, and it actually brought the family together as a group, then the parents would be more likely to keep paying for it. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of our design energy went that way. So for example, when you got a house in Toontown, you didn't just get your house. It was on an estate for your account, which had six houses on it. So everybody on the account like had a house 
on this kind of group estate so that basically your neighbors were your family members most likely. Mm. And so we thought about a lot of things that way, tried to make sure the game was balanced. And I've heard a few stories. One of my favorite one was, um, was, you know, a story that starts out sad where uh, parents, two parents separate. You know, there's a family played two in town a lot, but, but mom and dad separate. Dad is now living off in an apartment somewhere, but they stay in touch because they were all playing Toontown together. So they'd get online, they still got online and played Toontown together the way they used to. And what ended up happening was they'd play for a while, the kids would go to bed, mom and dad would stay online and they would do their chatting through the game. And they ended up working out their problems online in the game and uh they got back together wow right and, and when you when you think about uh about that i mean it could have happened anywhere it could have just made any kind of online chat but when you create things that bring families together sometimes you have you know more powerful consequences than you would have thought that's incredible yeah you you know sometimes disconnect the fact that these the users in the game are actual players and those players come from families and those families like you can you can change someone's life entirely by bringing them together or bringing them apart which is a, an odd responsibility being someone who makes just games for entertainment there's yeah. a deeper more human um, responsibility especially when you go into like uh, multi-user MMOs and that stuff yeah no the, uh, the things we do affect people wow what what would you advise? What advice would you give out to some some um, um, uh, young adventurer out there who wants to get into the world of game design, whether for VR or not for VR? What would you, what kind of path would you paint for them to, you know, I'm really passionate. I have a lot of ideas. I want to get started. What would you say to them on on how to take a couple of steps forward? Yeah, I mean, mainly I would just say, yeah, do that. Get in there. Start doing it. Um, there's not a lot of obstacles for you. Um, First, you can just go online, get all kinds of resources. If you're technically inclined, you can just download Unity and start banging out some games. If you're less technically inclined, um, you can get things like Game Maker or jump into uh, Dreams or um, there's, there's, there's so many of these things that, you know, go to Roblox and start to just kind of fool around with making content in any of those places or forget all that technical stuff and start making card games, start making board games. Um, you All you need is a pencil and some paper and a pair of scissors and you can do all kinds of stuff, um, but you have to do it. So there's two sides of it. One is actually doing it. And then the other side of it is thinking about it. And it's best to do both of those. I used to have a uh, uh, an English teacher, I, I love what he said. He said, you, you know, he was a high school English teacher. He said, you're not getting an education here. You know that, right? If you want an education, it's easy. Leave this place, go over to the library, spend four hours in the morning reading, spend four hours in the afternoon writing, then you'll get an education, right? And I've always thought about that. And it's and that balance is in a kind of an important idea. And the same thing goes with games. You can't just sit around and design games all day. You got to spend some time thinking about what is it that makes games work. And so part of that is, hey, play other games. You're probably already doing that. Mm -hmm. um, 
but are you thinking about what makes them work? So one of my, my first pieces of advice to, to people who are starting, who are like, no, I really, I wanna be a serious game designer. I tell them, start a blog, get a blog going where once a week you do a post with some of your thoughts about game design. And it could be, hey, I just played this game and let me tell you what I think of it. Or it could be, hey, I had an idea for a game. What if a game worked like this? And you actually start getting those thoughts out, you know, get them, get them on, on the keyboard, get them on paper. Um, but you, you've just got to, you've got to get going, start thinking and start, start doing. Um, and there's many paths uh, to, 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 to get there, but just doing it in a consistent way is the, is the best way to do it. Just, just get out there, start doing it. I, yeah. That makes, it, and, makes... and be aware what you're going to make. It's going to suck, right? <laughs> you're going to make a lot of stuff that you're like, whoo, that's not, I thought it would be cool, but it's not cool. That's fine. That's how it all is. That's how it is for all of us. Like I've, I've got a big notebook right here for a game that I've been like really excited about. And I've been like doing all these sketches and drawings and things and I'm all whipped up about it. I have no idea whether this is a good idea or not. No concept at all, um, but that's fine. That's all right. You just get out there and you just kind of keep at it and eventually it'll become obvious. Is this a good idea or not a good idea? And um, at that point, you'll, you'll either way, you're going to learn something valuable out of that. But if you don't do anything, you don't make anything, you don't, you don't learn anything. So you're talking, it's, it's a balance between the, the activities. Um, I often say it's difficult to be both the dungeon master and the player in the game of life. And it seems like we were talking about the balance between learning and doing, being yeah. able to say, hey, learning, being inspired, the doing being communicating the ideas versus it all spinning up in your head, whether you communicate on the blog or a video or anything, but just here's my thoughts. And this is how I would design something as just a way to get started. Yeah. Yeah. No, get it, get it moving it. just find a way to get it moving, whether you're, whether you're just sketching it out or just explaining it or just doing, uh, or just building a little part of it. I mean, most, most video games get a lot of paper prototyping anyway. So like build, build paper versions of, you know, you got an idea for like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if a combat system worked like this? Okay, great. Get some miniatures, get a board laid out, kind of find a way to represent your combat system like with, with some dice and moving some figures around and flipping some cards over. Can I, can we play test your, your combat system that way? Um, yeah, just get, just, you know, get, get to making is the main, uh, is, is the main thing. What does your, what does, I mean, what does your, does you or, or your studio's design process look like? Is it on your head onto like a notepad onto a whiteboard? Do you do it inside some sort of like online, like flow docs, like, like, how do you get it from your head out into the, you know, universe? Different people are different. I know people who they just want to sit down and like bust out a prototype and that's how they do it. Mm -hmm. um, me personally, I'm very pencil oriented. I really like to kind of draw, write out ideas uh, with words and sketches and start to get things going uh, that way. Um it's, it's kind of, and, and also and even just talking, right? Let's just sit down and talk about it. And, and particularly when you're with the right people, sometimes, I mean, and back to what I was saying before about those times when everybody's in an idea because everybody can see how right it is. There's, it, there's a special kind of conversation where 
you come in and say, hey, what if it's like this? And they're, and someone else says, no, what about what about this too? And you're like, oh yeah, and how about this? And how about this? And how about this? And all of you together see this thing forming that none of you could have done alone, but you all see it, you all get it, and it all feels right. And it happens in the process of conversation. Um, those things are often really the most magical. So I would, I would say talking about things is, can be a little underrated um, because talk, talking often can, can lead to some real progress. I love that. Yeah, I often think that the our first level of virtual reality is the is our is our mental models that we all have and share between each other, right? So that's kind of our innate virtual reality is we we imagine together, like we both imagine a pink elephant. Now we both yeah. have the pink elephant in our brain, but then we don't know if we have that if that state locked. If your pink elephant looks like my pink elephant, and that's the part of that collaboration communication that we're kind of dialing it in. So I, I, I absolutely, I love that. And there's, yeah. there's that, that weird flow that happens um, when you get with people. Um, I, I always forget who said it, but some, somebody was once asked, can you define cyberspace? And their answer was, it's that place you go when you're on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah, yeah, people, it's people, that's what it is. Yeah, uh, virtual reality is basically the internet with a face. That's that's what it is, yeah. and um, and I think that I mean, look at what are your thoughts on? Uh, I have this theory that virtual reality is the new social media. I think it's going to be an important social medium. the The thing that is the the key to success for social media is that it's asynchronous. You feel like you're at, you know, you're flipping through Twitter. You feel kind of like you're at a cocktail party where a bunch of people are saying stuff and you can respond to the things they say, but no one's actually there, right? They might've left that two hours ago or yesterday or whatever, right? And that asynchronous part is actually very important to the functioning of social media. Um, th this was kind of the big discovery of Facebook was that it was one of the first platforms that really embraced the asynchronous side of things. Virtual reality has a problem this way because it, it is so much about presence and being in a place that it is naturally synchronous, which, which means that it's kind of left out of a lot of kinds of normal asynchronous social media. Instead, its power is this sense of intimacy and the sense of being really, really close with another person where you can actually kind of, you know, sense their physical presence, even though they're not there. And you can sense their gestures and, and all of that. So there's real power in that, but it's, um, I mean, it, it's, I, I guess partly, I feel like virtual reality is 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 more like zoom and less like twitter um and we don't use zoom the same way we use these other things but it's still an important way of connecting usually we use that when we have to have more important more intimate conversations and that's i think where the real power of vr is going to be socially now 
that may change. Someone may figure out a very clever way to get VR to be a less uh, synchronized medium. But I, but I think it's that that power of closeness and intimacy is going to be the real power of social VR. That's super interesting. Yeah, um, the power of closeness, the power that you feel like you're talking to another human. That the I've had a couple of those mind-blowing moments like you get that burned in your brain sensation in vr like there's been magic moments like the first time i ever put on vr and someone made zelda top-down experience i got to play as zelda and i played it and i got sick because vr was terrible back then but it was incredibly fun it blew my mind the other one was when i met my first human and i didn't realize that it was a human i'm like oh my god you're a person talk to me and that was that was a lot of magic i can completely agree with the um with the the there's a the magic of vr is meeting other people in it and sometimes it can get it it can be a very lonely experience um we actually developed something um one of our the games that we made that was an asynchronous uh uh play with virtual reality um so we i mean just to let you know we made a game uh called sweet escape um it's a climbing candy game and <clears throat> One of the things that we did is uh, it's kind of like Mario Kart where you lap around racetracks, right? Running. Okay. So as you run, as you run through the as you run through the the climb through the racetracks, you get the fastest time. So you know in Mario Kart when you climb when you race through the Mario Kart and you yeah, go you get the ghosts. You, you get the ghosts. So yeah. we, we we put ghosts in there. So the yeah, fastest yeah, yeah. lap time you lap with other people. So if you we had to play with people out of sync, the people that you played with you saved their ghosts. And those those ghost saving because then you could say that was bob oh i remember that and then you can go back and play with bob every single time you play that lap and so that was one of the ways that we got around that asynchronous uh gameplay because it was because our game didn't have a ton of players in it but we wanted to find a way to have people feel like there's players in there yes yeah, it's it funny uh there was a another kids mmo moshi monsters they did something very similar um in order to make the world feel more full mm -hmm. um they they populated so if you walked around the the mmo world it would keep a ghost of you and so now your ghost would kind of move around the world and the part that was crazy was people could click on your ghost and pull up you know limited profile on you and put in friend requests to the ghost and so the next time you logged in you might get friend requests from a time that you weren't there that's cool. um, and it worked well for their context. And it's something I've, I've often thought about this question of can we do more with having uh, ghosts and traces of players be present in a game um, over time? And in fact, I'm going to make a note in my notebook as we're talking <laughs> the power of talking. I'm like, wait a minute, this game I'm working on, what about that? Can we do that? And I'm, I better bet write that down, traces right now. Yeah, what about that? Oh, of course, yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about uh, game development. You get inspired, you talk, you play, and, and it's it's one of the it's one of the very few industries that play is work. You know, my I was spending time with my niece and my nephew for the holidays, and they were getting uber jealous because I kept on being in VR. And my brother's like, "No, he's working." He's like, "No, he's in VR." He's like, "But he's working." He's yeah, right. <laughs> so we're very fortunate. Um. You know, one of the last questions here as we start to wrap this up, uh, what's your, you've, you've built an incredible studio. Uh, a lot of stuff you push, uh, you, you put out there is fantastic stuff. 
Um, do you have like a holy grail of building your studio? Is there something ultimately you want to be able to do with it? Do you do you want to make your own Disneyland park, or you know what is it? What does it look like to you to to hit that holy grail of your studio? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the uh, the model for our studio is different than some others. We don't we don't generally do publisher deals. We don't have investors. We've been a very independent studio. Um, but the way we've done so is we do a lot of work for higher projects. People will hire us to build this experience, that experience, the other experience. Um, and then we try and take the profits from those and use those on our own games. Historically for us, maybe 80% of what we do is working for other people. 20% is working on our own stuff. I would love to have enough success with what we do that we could slide that up to 50-50. Um, that that's kind of the big vision of of where we'd like to go to be able to have a little more freedom to 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 take a few more swings at at the cool stuff that we like to do but i don't have any specific um thing where i say yeah that's one day the studio's gonna make this game and that's the whole point of this studio instead we've always tried to stay focused on you know we like to be explorers and do the new thing and do the next thing and just that exploring that way is uh is just super fun um and so um for us mainly that long-term goal is 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 freedom so that we can kind of successfully explore the things that we think are going to be cool you know just a little more we do plenty of it now and it'd be nice to do even more of it. One big question we're facing is how big should this studio be? And we're at a special tipping point right now because we've got about 130 people and um, right around 150 is when most organizations start to split into uh, different subgroups. And so we're trying to decide, do we want to cross that threshold or not? Um, but you know, those high quality problems, figuring those things out um, is, is, uh, is good news when you can think about those things. Uh, human wise, we're only supposed to have about 150 people a part of our tribe. So right, exactly. you, you break the brain. Yeah, Dunbar's yep. number. Yeah, yep. Yep. 100%. Yeah, and that's a, that, is a, that is a challenge. But so it sounds like the, and you know, my, my vision when I created a studio is I always wanted to be sit around, think of amazing ideas and build them with my friends. Right. That was the goal. And, and, and it sounds like you've been able to achieve that. It's just how much freedom do you have to take wild swings versus, you know, working with other people? Because the more in-house you can make it, the more you can let that creative be free. But you kind of need to balance it out with work for higher stuff so that you can kind of keep the keep the team protected and going strong. Yeah, that's part of it. But on the flip side, like some of the work for higher stuff uh, is stuff that like you couldn't do by yourself. You know, we've, we've done projects for major theme parks and things. We've done a project with the Smithsonian Institution. You can't do that on your own. <laughs> you, need, you need to kind of have a partner uh, on, on some of these things. And so uh, that's why for me, I don't know if I'd want to push it much past 50-50 because we have so many partners that we absolutely love uh, working with. Um, so yeah, it's nice to have that mix of, of kind of 
you know, working, working with other people and being able to leverage the great things that they've done, um, as well as being able to spin up your own stuff out of nothing. Well, there's something to that too of, I often think that like one of the challenges when you first start out in the world, cause I do a lot of, hosted a lot of hackathons and game jams and things like that and stuff. And people sometimes operate in caves where they have the, they think they have the greatest idea in the world, but they don't talk to anybody. They don't look anything. They don't try anything. They don't sample anything. And they put their head up and it's just like, it's a vacuum. Uh, I think you've done a very good job at um, one working at Carnegie Mellon and another one taking on client work to kind of keep that sword sharpened of like being exposed to novel and open and innovative stuff and really different perspectives, keeping yourself versus being state locked in your own kind of perception um, that sometimes people get stuck into these holes of if you're only producing your stuff and you don't really hack, have an open uh, thing, you kind of get you, you, you have this paralysis of being locked in. So yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting the way you've, you've kind of uh, uh, circumvented that issue, which is- Yeah, really cool. now, be, being able, having the privilege to work at the Entertainment Technology Center, which is something I've done in parallel with Shell Games uh, for many years. Yeah, that, that's been an incredible uh, privilege to be able to do that because um, the whole point of the ETC is to kind of have students working in, in teams to invent new things and, and kind of create the future. So they tend to be, you know, working a few years out, sometimes five or 10 years out. And to be able to sort of be along for the ride on that and see these experiments and which ones are working and which ones didn't work, it really does help open your mind about um, what what might and might not be possible. And it's certainly, if nothing else, it's a real time saver. You know, when that stuff starts to actually show up and people say, let's build this cool thing. I'm like, let me tell you about something <laughs> that me and the students worked on six years ago and how it, we thought we thought that would work too. And let me tell you what happened. Um, that that can be that can be uh, really, really helpful. Yeah, that's, that's fun bringing the magic, but also lessons learned. I think that's that's super powerful. Um, so if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they reach out to you or your studio uh, to find out more about what you do? Yeah, well, it's uh, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. Um, you can just go to jessieshell.com. That's S-C-H-E-L-L.com. Uh, and there's you'll find links there to the work I do at Carnegie Mellon, the uh, links to the Shell Games, webpage which has plenty of information about are you interested in applying to shell games what are the games that shell games makes what are we up to what are we doing um plenty of information there and uh, my email and twitter accounts all that stuff is on there email is the easiest way to contact me is is there any games or anything that you'd like to um, talk about that you're excited about coming up that you're doing that you want to let the people know that you're up to um, well, let's see. Certainly, um, I'm, I'm sitting here, yeah, always getting like, oh, let me put my marketing hat on real quick. Um, certainly, the 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 thing, the recent things that we're really proud about are uh, in, in VR. Certainly, uh, encourage people to check out. I expect you to die. We're very proud about that. Also, we have another VR game called Until You Fall, which is our sword fighting game. That's available on Quest, Rift, Vive. Um, all of those platforms. But I guess I'd also encourage people to check out some of our um, maybe not quite as well-known titles. Um, one that's a free download that we're really proud of is a game called Mission It's Complicated, 
which is a uh, visual novel. So it's kind of an interactive game, but also kind of a graphic novel. Um, um, so it's a visual novel uh, all about superheroes and love. And we were really proud. It made a list of uh, top 10 visual novels from 2020. And we, we got number three on the list, which we're really, really pleased with. It was kind of an experimental title for us. And you can find that on Steam. That's on Steam because I've played Until You Fall. Great mechanics. I love the, the fight dynamics, uh, the, the, the way you go into battle. It's, it's awesome. Uh, uh, Mission Impossible, that's a PC. Sorry, yeah, it's, it's it's mission. It's complicated because it's, it's about it's about relationships. Uh, but yeah, it's that's a PC game, so you can find it on Steam. You can also find it on Itch, actually. But it's free in both places because uh, it was something we really kind of wanted to get out there. Mission complicated on Steam. Mm -hmm. that, I I love bringing the human elements into the superhumans that seem too perfect, and so that's a that's a really cool twist. I'll definitely check that one out. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate all of this and, and all of the, um, just all that you've given to the community and the world, the design and everything else that you produced. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to have you on. So I, I really do appreciate this. Sure thing, Dylan. It's great talking to you. Absolutely. All right, take care now. I'll see you later. All right. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.